new book makes some stunning allegations about Phil Mickelson. Plus, later in the episode, we get a look inside the sports documentary world with the directors of a film that just came out this week. It's Friday, August 11th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Those of you who have followed the career of Phil Mickelson may know that he has struggled with gambling, but a new book by Billy Walters provides some stunning details about just how far this went. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author David Rumsey. Welcome, David. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Good, good. So give us the headlines. What does Walter's book claim about Mickelson? Basically, everything that a lot of people have known about Mickelson, that his gambling addiction really is very bad. And the headline is nearly a billion dollars gambled, according to Walter's, over the last three decades by Mickelson. Yeah, so that's that's obviously a ton of money. What, what was he gambling on? Pretty much every sport you can think of, it sounds like. Baseball, football, basketball. A kind of scary claim is that he tried to bet on golf, the 2012 Ryder Cup, which he was playing in, and Billy Walters says that he talked him out of it. No word on you know how serious that was, or Mickelson hasn't addressed that yet, but I mean that, that would have been crazy if he would have bet on himself um, in a Ryder Cup tournament. Yeah, and I, I believe the figure was $400,000 on the Ryder Cup. So even for Phil Mickelson, you know, not a, just a, a nothing amount, even though a nothing amount is still not okay if you're playing in the tournament, but it was more than nothing. Exactly, and it, it seems that he wasn't um, betting on golf all the time. His vices were really, like we said, football, basketball, baseball. He's a notorious gambler on the course, which is something different than placing bets on an event that you're playing in. But really, this is just shining some light on Phil's personality throughout the years and really his uh, gambling problem. Right. And of course, you know, Phil Mickelson could make, I mean, so the, the claim is that he lost, was it over a hundred million um, over those 30 years? So, right. you know, that's something like three plus million dollars a year on average. Phil Mickelson can probably afford that. It obviously depends what else he's doing with his life. But, um, you know, he, he's rich enough. But, you know, even <laughs> even if you're rich, you know, if you can afford to make it a problem, you know, some people will. I have to ask the question that I'm guessing we don't really have much insight into right now. But Mickelson, of course, was the first big domino to fall um, around the founding of Live Golf. You know, once once he was in, it was clear that this was a thing and he, he gave cover to a lot of other golfers to join. D- do we know if there's any connection here to that? reported was a $200 million bonus that he got um, and, you know, any gambling debt he might have had. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge storyline when Liv was launching and those huge figures were coming out for players like Phil Mickelson. His gambling debt was something that a lot of people were trying to figure out and talking about. And sure, if you have $40 million, $100 million in gambling losses, I don't know if he still has any of that debt, but it can't hurt to have $200 million in cash to help uh, liquidate some of that if you have some payments that need to be made. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, again, one more time, this is conjecture, but you know, still some stunning details um, that that are coming out uh, about Mickelson who, you know, it's his fall from grace is, you know, it's one of the more dramatic ones in the sports world over the last couple of years between live and now this. Right. And he's such an interesting character because he really did, fall fall from grace after that 2021 PGA win 
and then he kind of has come back a little bit, right? I mean, he finished second at the Masters here in 2023, and we all knew this book was coming out, so I think a lot of people in the golf world are, aren't too surprised, but some of those figures are just shocking even for those that knew a memoir like this was coming. Yeah, absolutely. Right. David Rumsey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Owen. Hey everyone, Owen here with a quick addendum to that last segment. After David and I finished recording, Phil Mickelson did come out with a statement denying that he ever bet on the Ryder Cup. He said, I never bet on the Ryder Cup. While it is well known that I always enjoy a friendly wager on the course, I would never undermine the integrity of the game. I've also been very open about my gambling addiction. I have previously conveyed my remorse, took responsibility, have gotten help, have been fully committed to therapy that has positively impacted me, and I felt good about where I am now, end quote. Up next, I spoke to Bryant Robinson and Liam Hughes, who co-directed Destination NBA, a G League odyssey, which is a documentary produced by Religion of Sports, the production company founded by Tom Brady and Michael Strahan. I've been interested in the sports documentary space for a while now, both as something that has growing importance in the world of sports media, but also the more human elements, where cameras are following people through some of their most personal moments. I got to ask about all of that and more, and that conversation is coming up next. Okay, I am joined now by Liam Hughes and Bryant Robinson, co-directors of Religion of Sports' Destination NBA, a G League Odyssey. Welcome, Liam. Welcome, Bryant. Thank you. Thanks for having us, man. Um, so tell me about this documentary. Uh, why, why pick the G League as a subject? I think a big part of it is that the G League has been growing so much in recent years, and the NBA really wants to bring more eyes to it. There's so much talent in the G League. Um, it's so much more closely tied to the NBA now in the way the players move between the leagues. Um, and, you know, this project was a big part of the NBA's efforts to bring more, bring a bigger audience to the G League because it's such a high level of basketball. There really should be more people watching it. And Bryant, how do you turn this league into a story? Um, so, yeah, you, you just start off by doing a lot of research. Uh, going through all the teams and seeing, you know, who plays who plays for what team, where do they come from, what are their backgrounds. Um, you know, from doing a lot of research, we basically found five different archetypes. We found the, you know, the NBA prospect. We found the, uh, you know, the, the, the Denzel, Denzel Valentine, who had played in the NBA before and now had, you know, found his way back, back into, uh, or found his way down in the G League. We found all these, these five distinct archetypes and then follow them for the full season. And um, that's, yeah, that was it. You know, it starts with the athletes and this is a character driven film. And we really felt like the best way to show the G league was to show the, the type of players that are there, especially because, you know, they they haven't quite made it yet to where they all want to be. And so their stories are, are rich with, with struggle and, uh, uh, and triumph and, you know, and, all of the all of the elements that make up great storytelling are really found in these these athlete stories. Yeah, and when I watch these, you know, like a, a sports documentary or docu series, one thing, especially when you have a large universe of players to choose from, obviously one criterion is they have to be willing to be filmed and interviewed. But within that realm, once you've got those, I'm sure you've got many to choose from. How do you find the the people, even within those archetypes, who are you know when you say that one, like this is our guy. Well, yeah, to your point, the first first thing you have to do is establish trust. 
you know, you have to get these guys to, to trust you and want to actually share their stories with you. And that, that in itself is a process. So once you actually create that trust with your athletes from there, you, um, you, the way that you narrow them down is you basically figure out who, how you pick the athletes that are, again, the most distinct, um, from, from each other. So, you know, Denzel's in a, in an entirely different place than a Scoot Henderson. Scoot Henderson's in an entirely different spot than a Gabe York. Um, you create this uh, wide spectrum of storytelling so that you can, you know, encompass the most uh, relatability um, through, through through the picks. You know, if all these guys are, you know, uh, if all these guys are Scoot Hendersons, then you know you can only you can only go so far with that sort of uh, uh, storyline. Um, but if you have, you know, a character from this side of the world, or from that side of the world, or from this side of the town, or from that side of the town, that's how you create the most relatability. And, and widen that umbrella of, of uh, engagement. There, there's some luck involved too, man. And I would say like, we got so lucky with this film of um, really finding these athletes who were so ready to tell their stories, who wanted to tell their stories, who wanted to give us that time. And then like, like Brian said, building trust is, is the second step. You know, once, once you have that luck and you find those guys, it's really about showing them that, you know, we, we want to tell the most honest um, and kind of beautiful version of your story. Um, but it takes a lot of luck. And we, we had multiple conversations about how it was just so incredible to end up with the cast that we ended up with. Yeah, I was just thinking about that trust element. Last night, actually, I was watching the Netflix, uh, the, their tennis docuseries, Breakpoint. And they see, you know, players who have just, you know, for instance, lost the finals in Wimbledon. It's, you know, in perhaps the most crushing moment of their career. And, you know, it's the player, it's her boyfriend, maybe maybe one other person. They're all crying. But also there's, in my head, I'm like, but also there's a cameraman just like also standing there and watching this very personal moment. And, you know, uninvolved, I guess, but also, you know, following them around. How do you um, how do you build that trust, and does it does it feel like you are watching these unmediated moments, even though you know you're there with a camera? The the, mo the, mo the moment the moment you throw a camera into a room, man, no, no matter what's happening, like say if you know say if like five guys are chasing me down the street, you know if if I notice if I look to my right and I see that uh, there's a camera that's capturing that, I'm gonna run a little bit differently from those five guys, right? Like. Reality ends the moment you pick up a camera. So, in order to create the most authenticity and also to um, create that relationship where a talent actually wants to continue to tell their story as as vulnerably as possible, you have to present the opportunity. Which, which in a lot of ways is, you know, this is a very therapeutic process, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, reflective. You're able to reflect through the experience of having us capture you in ways that reality itself doesn't present. And so that's, you know, that's really the key in getting, you know, Scoot Henderson, who's, you know, at the top of the world to actually allow you into his home and allow you to film with his mom or, you know, capture his dad and have them on the couch. Like, how do you get into those moments? You get there by presenting the opportunity of like, look, and 10 years from now, you're gonna be a superstar. You're gonna to want to be able to look back at this content and see you know, 18-year-old Scoot Henderson and, 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 and these cherished moments. And that, that's, that's a really big way in getting like someone like a Scoot Henderson to participate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Liam, I'll, I'll let you take that one too. 
Yeah, because one thing we talked about a lot and that I think proved true is that um, I would say that the one instance where that is not true, where we, when you pick up the, the camera, reality ends, is when these guys are on the court. Because when they're on the court, they don't, they, well, there's a lot of cameras there, obviously, that's part of the game. But pointing a camera at someone when they're on the court as a basketball player versus when they're in their living room are two different things. And we were really big, and, and credit to our EP Dave check for this. He really pushed hard for it was to have in-game wires on our players. Um, every time we were there filming with them and we felt like you can learn a lot about someone from how they show up on court, you know, when they're unguarded and when they're in the moment. Um, and so I think some of the, some of the coolest sequences in the film are when we're with these guys on court because it's so unguarded. Um, but yeah, and you know, credit to Brian. I think he has a really special talent for creating those moments um, on set that he talked about. Um, I think that you know, another thing we did is we did one key interview with each player, where they were kind of in a in more of a sterile studio environment, and the rest of the time we we did uh, OTF interviews um, in the in the places that they're most comfortable, um, because asking them to open up about certain things, we wanted to make sure that they were in a place where they were where they felt felt comfortable in, in their physical space so yeah and i think that's some of the secret sauce to a lot of these documentaries and docuseries is that it's not just after a game where you know who knows where their head's at especially if, if the game didn't go well and also they get used to you know saying certain things in certain ways to the media where it's fairly milk toast and they're not going to get in too much trouble unless they want to get in trouble so yeah, you have to, you know, go to their living room or, you know, just chat with them while they're playing video games and, and you maybe get a little bit more of that, that human being. I spoke to Religion of Sports CEO Amit Sankaran uh, on this show. And one thing he emphasized was um, how you, Religion of Sports really aims for the top of the top, you know, Tom Brady, Serena Williams, Simone Biles. How do you keep that Religion of Sports ethos when your subjects are all people who are not at the top, you know, almost by definition, if you're in the G League, you're not in the NBA. So how is it still a religion of sports production for you? Well, that's an interesting one. I think that what I would say first is that, you know, to quote Spencer Dinwiddie, who is one of our, the NBA former G Leaguers, who's now in the NBA guys who we interviewed, is the way that he put it is basically, all right, if there's 500 roster spots in the NBA, the 500 guys in the G League are the next best 500 in the world. Um, and obviously what Amit is saying is, yeah, we don't even just target the 500. We target the, the 10 of the 500. Um, but I think the fact is like from the very start, we wanted to show that these guys are elite athletes and the margins between them being in the G league and them being in the NBA are razor thin. Um, and I think that as well, it, it, it comes out in the style. Like we, we latched onto this word odyssey from the beginning a G League Odyssey, that's an epic word. You know, if you think about the original uh, Odyssey and, and Homer, like it's epic, right? And we really tried to, and I think we did a good job of, of creating um, a sense that these guys are, are giants and are superstars, even though many of them aren't yet. And just as a last question, um, if... Amith and Tom Brady and Michael Strahan gave you a call tomorrow and said, we've got a big budget. You can take on any, any topic, any subject in the sports world. Who are you picking? Uh, I, I, I would do a G League part two in a heartbeat.
how would that be different from what you just did? Um, we would just, I, I've been thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot and I think we just, we would pick another five archetypes. You know, I, th I think when we started this thing, we had like 20 different archetypes that we could potentially choose from. Um, and then we dwindled that down to five archetypes. I would just explore the other archetypes. Um, you know, there were so many different characters that we had to, that we just couldn't go with just because we only have, you know, we only have so much real estate to tell the film. Um, I would love to find out what those characters are up to and see what, see how, see where they go for the next season. Um, I would, I would love that more than anything because, you know, doing this G League project was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. and, and going, going back to your last question, you know, it's just the luxury of being, being able to tell stories of athletes who don't have, you know, a thousand people telling them, you know, you have to, you have to do it this way. You know, they don't have media trainers. They don't have, you know, a lot of staff telling them, chew bubblegum like this, walk like that. You know, they're, they're, they're raw and they're real. And I think that, you know, um, that's what people are, <laughs> that's what people are relate to. So just having that luxury and be able to tell authentic stories is uh, um, everything for, for me as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. That's a great point. You know, and I would also point to religion of sports, our flagship series, which was about, everyday athletes, uh, you know, uh, pursuing extraordinary things. Um, and I was, that was one of the reasons I was drawn to this company was because of the storytelling in that series. Um, I think that, that quote unquote, ordinary people um, can be oftentimes more inspiring to quote unquote, ordinary people like us than those who have reached the heights of, of Tom Brady and Steph Curry, but we love them too. And, and, and as much as I would love to make a season two of G League, which I would, I'm going to go with Roger Federer to answer your question. <laughs> That's the guy that I've been wanting to make uh, uh, something about for a while. He's, uh, I mean, the, the, the way that he did it, what he did, the way that he did it, um, and the way that he's really protected him, his family from the media over the course of his career um, has been, uh, is really interesting to me. Uh, so he, he's the guy that I would love to, to have dinner with, <laughs> so to speak. All right. Yeah. Very nice. Um, all right. The film is Destination NBA, a G League Odyssey. Liam Hughes, Brian Robinson, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having us, Owen. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, guys. That is it for today. It's an unofficial holiday weekend across Europe as the Premier League, La Liga, League One, Bundesliga, and many others, including the Saudi Pro League, start their seasons. Let me know who you're rooting for and if anyone can beat Man City. I'm going to have a written feature coming out on our site and newsletter about the Premier League, so check that out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your weekend. We will see you on Monday.